Welcome to Help from Future Self. Welcome, Archons. It's another episode of Help from Future Self, a conversational Keyforge podcast by Keyforge friends from all around the world. And I mean that very literally in this episode. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, but you can call me Alex, and I am joined, as always, by my pal, my coach. It's Boulevard Paper Fight. What's the haps, Blake? Hey, what's going on? And a very special first-time guest to Help from Future Self. It's Aurora. Hello, hello. Nice to be here. For those of you not familiar with Aurora, she is uh, the mind behind the incredible Time Shapers blog at timeshapers.com, where she gives all kinds of ideas about Keyforge itself, about strategy, about ways you can approach the game, general philosophy of playing the game. Not only that, the current and reigning Belgian Grand Champion, as well as a top four and top 16 finalist at the Krakow Double Vault Tour. Incredible stuff. So excited to have you on the podcast, Aurora. I wanted to start off just by asking you a couple of questions to let our audience get to know you if they aren't familiar with you from uh, your other appearance on other Keyforge podcasts. Um, How did you get involved with the game? What was your very first experience with Keyforge? Uh, Well, I picked up the the game like right uh, before uh, release. Like I pre-ordered a couple of uh, decks and then I just... Uh, checked out the local gaming stores, which I have not visited ever, and checked if they had any pre- any release events for Keyforge, and they did. So I attended, and we had like a pretty significant 20-plus players turnout. It hasn't been holding up as well over time, but I've stuck with it, and I'm having a lot of fun. And you've traveled to a number of events, uh, for example, the ones where you took home championships, the ones where you top four and top 16. How many events would you say that you've traveled to over the course of your involvement with the game? Uh, four so far. I've been to um, the Grand Championship in Utrecht, the Grand Championship in Belgium, and the Krakow Voltour and the UKGE Voltour in um, last May. That was the first one. Great. And do you see yourself uh, traveling to more events in the future, considering the success you've had so far? Well, I got a paid ticket to Wall, so I'm definitely going there, uh, which would be my my first visit in America, in the U.S. specifically. Um, I definitely intend to travel more. Uh, It's been a lot of fun. The community is awesome. My experiences abroad have been awesome. I still don't know exactly where I'm going. Uh, Probably... The Voltour in um, in Holland, uh, we're going to be in July uh, because we have a lot of friends in the area that we made through, through Keyforge. So we're going to attend there and uh, meet them up. And whatever looks interesting and the flights are decent. Like uh, one of the reasons I went to Belgium is that uh, the flight there was like 200 bucks and I could also make it like a vacation with my uh, significant other that doesn't play Keyforge. So that was fun. Oh, that's awesome. Um, are you planning on uh, participating in Vault Warrior at all? Uh, I haven't decided yet. Like my, my initial plan was uh, basically uh, wait for the, the champion, the final championship in Miami and then go there and participate in the last gen qualifiers. And if I don't make it, there's supposed to be a parallel uh, Volto. But if there's something really attractive uh, in Europe, in the qualifiers or something like that, I probably jump on the train. I think I think Europe is getting the first qualifier, if I'm not mistaken. I have no idea. There's been zero information regarding actually yeah, the format, so I don't know. 
Yeah, that is a true statement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we like to complain about in, in Canada and North America about the lack of information about organized play. But from what I understand, speaking online to folks in Europe, it's, it's just as bad, if not way worse there in terms of knowing where and when you have to be, what formats are going to be in play and so on and so forth. Would you say that's true? I mean, it's fairly the same. Like we in Europe, there were a lot more grand championships and the U.S. had just won. Uh, while the U.S. had a bunch of vault tools and Europe has been like in a drought. So, you know, about a mix. Some of them is better, some of them is worse. Yeah, we there in North America. There was two grand championships. There was one in Canada, and then one in the U.S. And they were two weeks apart from one another, and both on the East Coast, which I thought was kind of interesting. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Aurora, because you're a first time guest. Uh, folks who listen to this podcast kind of know a little bit about me, a little bit about Blake, and how we like to approach the game and how we like to play the game. But I think one of the most instructive things that we can find out about someone is by asking them about what their favorite house is and how it relates to the way they play Keyforge. Aurora, I have a guess on this one, but I'm very curious to know, do you have a favorite house and do you think it reflects the way that you play Keyforge? I don't think I have like a, a definite favorite house, but the house that contains the most cards that I'm really appreciative of is actually Untamed. Uh, because I really like Recursion. And Untamed just has a bunch of them, like the Glimmer, the, um, the Penseed, and stuff that basically gives me a lot more options during my turn. I don't, I don't want to, I'd like not to be limited to what's on my board and in my hand, but rather what's in my entire discard pile. And that just gives me more options and more things to think about. Also mimicry, which can do the same for my opponent's discard. So lots of options. I like having lots of options. Very, very interesting. A Gravid Cycle fan then, I assume. Uh, yeah, definitely. Though it's rare, so it doesn't show up as often as the other ones. Very, very true. Moving right along to one of our regular recurring segments. This one is called Maverick Mix. If you have not heard us do this on the podcast before, this is one where each of us proposes a Maverick card we would like to see in another house and the way that it would synergize with that house to make the game fun to play. I actually found out uh, that uh, somebody uh, heard us discussing this on a previous episode, heard me talking about how cool I thought Universal Recycling Bin would be in Dis, and showed me a cool deck that they had that had the combo and uh, told me a little bit about how it played. And I was super fascinated by that. Uh, let's get some more examples out here. Let's start off with you, Aurora, since you're the guest. Can you give us what you think would be a cool Maverick, one you'd like to see in a Keyforge deck? Well, uh, I've been like browsing cards today to, in order to find one, and I actually started with a different idea, but I landed on uh, the Quiet Anvil. The Quiet Anvil is a, an artifact that gives you one amber on play, and it says that key costs uh, two less amber just in general, and after a player forges a key, you destroy the Quiet Anvil. Uh, now, this card is shown up in Shadows, which has the worst key cheats in the game. So basically, if this shows up in any deck that has key cheats in any other house, it would be so much better because it will just give you free amber for the key cheat turn. Mm, that's a good one. So, for I example, if it untamed. showed up in Untamed, yeah, with uh, all those imprinted Mermooks running around. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, in Untamed, it would also work with... Um, 
like uh, Data Forge or Imperial Forge, those both are pretty good good key cheats, and this will just give another free amber for the play. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a great one. It's I, I like how you pr- approach it from like almost a conceptual standpoint, where anything with a key cheat that reduces it, this will have a effect like greatly on those ones it's not just necessarily one particular house it can really put in work being in basically any other house almost other than shadows i mean it's still good in shadows but you have to play it in a very situation in a situation where your opponent wouldn't immediately forge their key yeah what about yourself blake what do you got on the uh, on deck for a maverick that you'd like to see so for me i actually chose uh cutthroat research and I want to see Cutthroat Research in Sorian. And the reason being is because Cutthroat Research gives you an Ember for playing it. It's an action card. And it says if your opponent has eight or more Ember, steal two. And the reason why I like this is it creates the proposition where if your Dino has Exalted Ember, and let's say your opponent is on check, you could essentially swing it into one of their creatures, allowing it to be destroyed. And then that Ember goes to your opponent. And then you could cut through research to get the ember back on your side of the board. And if you had something like a Raider Galleon or um, any of the other dinos that can capture and whatnot, it would give you an opportunity to also take them off check. So I feel like the swing potential in that instance is a lot greater because in Logos, as great as it is, is you need the setup of your opponent having more ember, which sometimes doesn't is not the case. Where in Sorian, I feel like you have more opportunity to be in control of getting that cutthroat to go off. So I think it'd be a fun one to see, be in Sorian instead. It will definitely allow for some interesting lines of play. Mm-hmm, yes. So there's two ways you can think about Maverick mix. One is, can I get a card that would be a good Maverick in an underpowered house, like say Brobnar or Shadows in the Worlds Collide meta that would give them a tool that they sorely need Or do I want to pick a card that's in an already pretty good house that would give them a lot of extra sauce and lead to some interesting things that might happen? I'm going with the latter this episode. I want to see Nature's Call, and I want to see it in the Star Alliance. This one's real straightforward. We all know what Nature's Call. It's been in every set so far. It's an amazing action. What it does is it says you get a pip of amber and three cards on the table, three creatures specifically get sent back to their owner's hand. You can use them on your own creatures. If you have play effects that you want to recur, you can put it on opponent's creatures. It gets past destroyed effects, so uh, it's a great way of dealing with captured amber if they're not warded. It's also a great way of you getting to recur cards like Aurora was talking about earlier. I want to see it in Star Alliance because Star Alliance has arguably the absolute best play effects in the game right now. We're talking about our Calm Calm Officer Kirby's. We're talking about our Engineer Wells, so on and so forth. I feel, uh, and of course, our Sensor Chief Garcia's for key cost increases, being able to do those multiple times in a single turn, I think, would be both incredibly powerful and lead to some super complex lines of play, which is what we're all about with Star Alliance. We like seeing those little out-of-house key cheats, which I think they're the current reigning masters of. Have either of you guys run across anything like this before? Because I think it would be absolutely ridiculous uh, in any kind of play situation. Okay, so I've actually had experience with this exact combo before I had a deck with calm officer Kirby and nature's call. So I was able to basically play Kirby to use the nature's call in the way you've just described. So yes, it is absolutely amazing and fantastic. I, I love it. Yeah, but uh, it would definitely be fun if it was just in house and you could do it with everything and wouldn't need to rely on a Kirby. Yes. 
All right. So one of the reasons we wanted to have Aurora on the podcast is that we had a conversation, I believe on Twitter a little while ago, about what is an Amber worth? And there's two ways you can sort of look at that conversation. Uh, You can look at it from the perspective of uh, when a card has a piece of amber on it, is it because it's a card that's kind of medium and the amber is a bonus to make it good? Um, Or is an amber worth an action of some kind? For example, we have cards now like, uh, say, Whisper or Sorry About That, where an amber may end up going to your opponent so that you can get the use of a fairly powerful effect. Aurora, you reached out and you said, "I I think I have some ideas I'd love like to get across about this why don't i throw the conversation to you what do you think an amber is worth well that's a very good question which i'm still not entirely wrapping my head around but like i do have some concept relating to the value of amber during a turn because uh we play the game and we generate some amber and we generate a different amount of amber based on various scenarios based on whether we have actions that generate them immediately or we can read them from the board or maybe we have some effects that return amber to us from our opponents that captured amber. Uh, In all of those cases, we know that we need six amber for key. So what we're trying to do here is try and evaluate what kind of effect we would like to get in order to balance it with losing an amber or my opponent gaining an amber or putting an amber on one of my creatures like exalting and my opponent potentially getting that amber what what is the level of power of this effect that we're looking for uh and i think that this greatly changes between all kinds of uh houses based on how they play and how they interact with the opponent. We all know that Saurians are very good at keeping the amber that is on their creatures from going to the opponent with cards like Imperial Scutum, which is an upgrade that with the creatures destroyed or the amber goes into the common supply. But suppose we had some kind of effect that we could always do. For example, let's say uh, every player would be able to just say, I can. Sp- I spend one amber to kill a creature. How often would we do that? Uh, let's, let, let's ask you guys, how, how often do you think you would just spend one amber to kill a creature? I mean, I've I done it that- with Whisper a lot of times. Yeah, I've, I've used Whisper in the same context, and I also feel that it comes down to value proposition. So it's is how how much threat does the creature possess in terms of stopping you from moving forward with your game plan? And the other question is, is if spending that ember this turn, does it actually prevent you from going in check and potentially advancing onto the next stage of the game in terms of the threat level you're presenting and getting to that third key? Because Whisper is great and I mean, it's one of the best ways to deal with some of those really big bodies that would take multiple swings and essentially sacrificing multiple creatures. So that value of that ember is amazing. And honestly, when we're talking about it in this way, we're clearly almost referring to dinosaurs. And if you have a way of, let's say they have captured ember on them, then I think it also changes the proposition and the value that is inherent there. Because even if you're losing one ember, if that dino goes away and you get some ember, then obviously it has a lot more value. So I just look at it from threat versus your own game advancement and and the value that it possesses in that moment. Because sometimes it's it's the trade-off where you're losing one, but then you're gaining three. 
So it's, I think it's, it's such a situational question. I had, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, moments mulling over this question and really trying to identify it because I think it falls into a few categories. I'm less strategic a player than Blake is. Um, my OG favorite Coda cards are the big amber cards that uh, sometimes benefit your opponent. I'm thinking about Fuzzy Gruen, as you might tell. I'm a big fan of that card. I'm also thinking about things like Fertility Chant. It never bothered me to give my opponent amber in those cases because in the case of the Gruen, one, you're getting the best card in the game on the table. Don't at me. Uh, but two, uh, I'm getting two amber in return and a body. So, uh, you know, the one amber over them, not a big deal. I'm advancing my state of play. Same with fertility chant. I'm more than halfway to a key. Yeah, you've got a third of a key, but I'm ahead of you theoretically at most times I'm going to play this. Um, that's not a strategic way to think about things, but it is a little bit about my thinking around what an amber going to my opponent is worth. Yeah, that's for giving them amber, which is obviously you want to be able to compensate for that in some manner, because giving your opponent amber without advancing your own uh, game plan in towards a key is obviously detrimental. Because if you just do that all game, then they will they will eventually win unless you can actually destroy that amber in some way. But losing your own amber is sometimes extremely potent in order to stop some effect. For example, um, obviously if your opponent has a creature on the board that they can use uh, in any house, uh, for example, um, uh, the Autolegionel, which is an artifact that can, uh, with an action, turns into a creature that belongs into uh, to all houses, uh, then if you, if you let them have that creature, then they are going to generate one amber every turn. So it's spending an amber to kill that creature is obviously beneficial because you're only spending one to potentially stop them from reaping several times. But usually in Keyforge, uh, you would be spending one amber to cut them back about a third of the turns because you, you don't always call all the houses repeatedly. Uh, so, some, for example, a uh, uh, simple creature in a house untamed uh, would have would only generate an amber every third turn on average, while uh, the same creature in house uh, Star Alliance might generate much more because Star Alliance tends to be called more often because they can house cheat. So the value of the amber here really depends on how often your opponent will be able to use that creature. That makes total sense. Interesting uh, stuff. Yeah. So and and well, basically, if if I'm not playing, if I'm playing a card that doesn't have an amber on it, I need to have some kind of positive effect on it. Like one of the interesting cards in uh, Worlds Collider doesn't have an amber on it is Inky Gloom. Because this, this card basically says, well, you're playing a card that doesn't get you any amber. Uh, basically, a sort of a dead card in your deck in, in terms of progressing your own game plan. But it also says that your opponent isn't going to be able to generate any amber from creatures on their turn, which can be quite significant. Yeah, I've... I I hear you on that one. That one is... Uh, that card is very interesting, especially if there is a a board state that is getting out of hand. And not to mention, like you were mentioning, if it's if Star Alliance is is a dominant house on the board, a lot of their 
creatures are used for their they have play fight reap but a lot of the times it's just used for reap because they're a little bit more fragile creatures and now making that proposition of them potentially not calling star alliance um, is huge and also if they do choose to call it they're all going to be fighting which is going to be putting damage on them and makes them a little bit more easy to take care of if not they're being sacrificed to for some other reason so i think you're you're totally spot on with how that card looks like a dead card but depending on your matchup it could be very very potent i think one of the most telling things about worlds collide as a set and we definitely saw this with aoa as well is that when they designed coda they put amber on so many cards so many actions that you know from an objective standpoint probably didn't need a bonus pip of amber they were already amazing i'm thinking of things like control the weak i'm thinking of things like uh too much to protect cards that were big impactful and you know could swing games and create momentum or steal momentum away while at the same time giving you a bonus for playing them and i feel like cards like inky gloom and another set might have actually gotten a pip of amber but it feels like the design team is shying away from that a little bit is that something that you think you see when you look at the worlds collide card pool are they getting shyer when it comes to what an amber is worth and whether or not a card needs an amber on it to be good and impactful well, I, I'm not. I haven't looked at any numbers, but uh, I've, I've thought about this once we've started talking about the enhance mechanic and uh, um, mass mutations. Uh, basically, there are some cards that would add uh, ember pips to other cards in your deck, and I think it doesn't actually matter too much which cards have the amber pips on them. So as long as the average amount of amber in a deck is roughly the same, it doesn't really matter which cards have them. Like obviously you want your big impactful cards to have an amber pip on them so you can do something big and also uh, reach check in the same turn. But as long as your if as long as going through your deck generates sufficient amber to, to get you to the to keys that you need, it, it doesn't really matter which cards they're on. Now, I th now we all know that uh, Age of Ascension had sufficiently lower amount of uh, Amber Pips on cards than uh, Call of the, Ar Call of the Archons, uh, but I think that Worlds Collide on average doesn't have much lower than uh, Call of the Archons. It's just Call of the Archons had some decks that had like really a lot of them, basically mostly because of uh, uh, the Amber Pits been printed on Untamed, like cards like Death Pixie, Fuzzy Growing, and Fertility Chance that could really bring the bonus Amber up. Uh, but in Worlds Collide, I think it's like pretty nice average, and I think that's a good place to be at. Also, the other thing I want to talk about in the, the value of an Amber is the fact that when you're giving your opponent an ember for a card, for example, like Bren the Fanatic, or even like Alex was saying, the Fuzzy Gruen, is if you're playing against a Martian Generosity key abduction deck, sometimes you don't want to stop them from forging. So the value of an ember and the, the value of you giving it to your opponent can actually have a strategic play of preventing a combo that a deck can rely on. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Aurora? Uh, it's definitely a strategic play that you should be doing if you can. Uh, most most decks don't have that option, 
But yeah, against uh, Monster Generosity, you often want to make them forge a key. So if you sacrifice a creature to uh, that has captured Amber in order to bump them up to six or seven, uh, that can definitely work. We also wanted to have Aurora on the podcast because she is a champion for a format of Keyforge called Gemini, which I believe you named. Is that correct? I did. Uh, yeah, um, I actually heard from this from a friend, and uh, I won a tournament online where you get to pick the next format, and I picked this format. And uh, Brett, that all uh, for one gaming that uh, organizes it, asked me what's the name of it, and I had to come up with one. So. Gemini it is. And how does Gemini work? So uh, the idea is that uh, both players bring two decks that they believe are fairly evenly matched, and they present it to the opponent. And then there is a chain bidding process, like in uh, Adaptive, in which the winner of the chain bidding uh, gets to play with their own decks, uh, make both players play with their own decks. So, for example, if I brought two decks and uh, Blake brought two decks and uh, I bid three and Blake said pass, then we are both playing with my decks. However, Blake is the first one to get to choose which one of my decks he wants to play with. So... Um, I can't go too high with my chains. The chains only give me the benefit of playing with decks that I know well, and I don't know the matchup between them very well. Uh, so I can't bid too high because then I would just get the worst deck between the two and chained, and it would be pretty bad. But if Blake uh, gets to um, uh, pick pick the, the deck that he likes better, then uh, he still gets to place a deck that he might not know well, and I do. So there is some benefit to that. That's that's actually really funny that you described it because I had my first experience with this format uh, last weekend when uh, I participated in a tournament with you for at Brett's All for One Gaming, and it was Gemini in the first time, and I actually chose my decks based on none of the criteria that you just described. <laughs> How did you do this? I literally chose it because I had a new deck that I had never played before and I really wanted to try. And then another deck that I would be playing as part of the six-week uh, Chaining Days tournament that we're doing for Chainbound, where you're committed to one deck for six weeks and see how many chains you can do. And I thought, well, I don't mind. This deck significantly looks better. And I feel that I'm going to be an advantage because I'm going to see another quality player playing this deck and get some insight and at the same time get to test out a new deck. And it literally worked out exactly that way, except the weird thing was, was that I was taking my other deck that I'd never played before with between four and, and seven chains. And I was actually winning with it against my deck that I considered like significantly better. And it was kind of a weird... Um, a weird position to be in in that sense. I, my only loss was actually to you, Aurora, and I ended up just winning from strength of schedule, I think is how it played out. But it was it was a really fun tournament and a good way to look at two decks that you have. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting format. Like, I mean, uh, obviously, if, if a format is played casually and if a format is played competitively, they are played differently. Like, uh, the first time that I played Gemini, I brought two decks that I thought were interesting and I wanted to see how they played against each other. Uh, there were play decks that I have played in the past, and I knew some of the quirks, but I didn't actually play them against each other. Now, if this becomes a very popular format and you start 
uh, seeing like uh, big tournaments in this format, then obviously people are going to play the matchup between their own two decks a lot in order to get to know what those decks do to each other, uh, which is something we obviously didn't do in preparation for a small online tournament on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We must be coming up on time here at Help From Future Self, but we cannot finish an episode of this podcast without the titular segment. This one is called Help Help From Future Self. Self. Aurora, you are the guest, and I believe you have one for us this week. Uh, Yeah, I was actually in a chain bound uh, last week, and I was playing a new deck that I've picked up. It's a very cool deck. Uh, It has two punctuated equilibriums which is the untamed card action. Uh, each player discards their hand and then draws a new hand like it was the first, uh, the beginning of their turn, uh, end of the turn. And um, I, I'm basically trying to practice this deck because I think it would be an interesting adaptive deck. And so I wanted to take it to chain bound and put some chains on it and do that for several uh, weeks also because... Um, I have been playing really random decks in Chainbound. I want to try getting chains on a deck. I've never done that before. Like I, the most I've brought a deck to a Chainbound is twice. Uh, anyway, I brought this deck to the Chainbound, and the very first match that I play, um, this deck doesn't have a lot of amber control. It has like three cards that produce any kind of amber control. It has a um, sci officer, science officer. It has. Uh, information exchange and one other card. I don't remember. But my opponent played Keeping Oblivion and removed those two cards. Oh, yeah. The third card is uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, Seismic Entangler. And um, I was playing, playing this game and we're nearing the end of the game and it was pretty, pretty close. And I had a significant board uh with uh, Star Alliance and Untamed and Logos, and my opponent had four uh, Sanctum creatures out. And they were on two Amber, and they passed it on to me, and I simply promoted my own game uh, in order to develop my board and get myself into position to win in a turn or two. Uh, But I completely neglected to see how much Amber they had and how much amber they could reap because they had two amber in their pool plus the four on the creatures on their board uh, that would get them to six. And since I have barely any amber control left in my deck, that means game. Uh, so yeah, this is something very important to look into when you start your turn. Is my opponent able to go to six on the next turn for the last key? And if they are, how am I going to stop them? Um, as it stands... Uh, I didn't do anything. I didn't kill a creature. I didn't do anything to stop them from reaping for four, and that's exactly what I did, and I lost that game. And if I would have played Logos and used my Seismic Entangler to stop them from reaping, I possibly could have won. That's an interesting one. I actually like that. Is Sometimes you, you're looking at your own way of advancing your game instead of sometimes taking into consideration what your opponent does with the, it's almost like the classic BDQ cards in hand versus board equals the potentially the most efficient play. And if you think, okay, they only have two Ember and you look at it from that standpoint, oh, oh, they only have two Ember. I don't have to worry about anything, but you're not considering 
the the reap potential that exists. The that's a that's a very good one, and I, I like that. I'm going to definitely be, I guess you know your start of turn checklist that you kind of go through. I'm going to look at that a little more closely because I don't think I'm consciously evaluating that aspect as much as I should. Yeah, and it also comes into uh, an article I written recently about uh, potential amber per turn. Like you can think of most decks to be able to generate a certain amount of amber per turn, even if they don't have a board. And if they have a board, then they do add that to the value, and you can have a pretty good guess as to how much amber your opponent is going to be able to generate on the next turn. And um, another thing that I thought while I was losing that game is that playing decks with very little amber control teaches you a lot about the game because you have to pay attention to stuff like this. Otherwise, you have no chance at all. That's very interesting. I, I like that idea. A great lesson to learn. Aurora, I'm going to put you on the spot here on the podcast for the world to hear. Will you join us again on a future episode of Help from Future Self to have another interesting conversation about the game of Keyforge, the game we all love? Of course, anytime. Wonderful. All right. Where can they find you online? Uh, well, I have a Twitter, which is at Material Poetics. I have my uh, blog, which is on pipeshapers.com. And I also hang around uh, the Sanctimonious uh, Discord server. So find me there and chat with me. And I'll make sure to put your blog in the show notes if anyone is interested in checking the Time Shapers blog out. And where can folks find you online, Blake? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's B-L-V-D Paper Fight. You can find me at Scuzzy Gruen on Instagram, on Twitter, and on The Crucible playing all kinds of online games as I try and get to grips with the game we call Keyforge. That is it for this episode of Help from Future Self. Thank you so much to Aurora for being our guest this week. Until next time, stay forging. Stay forging.